You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, y'all. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, uh, and I have the pleasure of being the uh, pastor here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you have joined us. We are in the middle of a series that we've called Come and See, and this series is all about what Jesus is like. And the reason we're talking about what Jesus is like is because the invitation that Jesus has for every single one of us, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from, his invitation to all of us is to come and follow him. To come and be his disciple or to be his apprentice. But what will cause us to want to follow Jesus, to actually spend time with him and even become like him and do what he did, which are all elements of following Jesus? What would cause us to want to do that? Well, you have to know what he's like. You have to see what he's like to see, is he really worth following? And so this is what we're talking about. What is Jesus like? And the way we're approaching this topic is kind of fun because we are, uh, during the week, in our small groups, what we call our midtown communities, we're watching this show called The Chosen. And The Chosen is a TV show about Jesus and his followers that I personally find to be fantastic. And it's surprising that it's fantastic because it's Christian media and Christian media is rarely fantastic. But this is fantastic. It really does a great job portraying what uh, Jesus' disposition and his character and just like really on a biblical, beautiful way portraying what Jesus is like. And so we're watching that in our groups. We're uh, discussing those, those episodes. And then on Sundays, we're actually teaching from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in a way that dovetails or aligns with that past week's episode. And for those of you who are tracking along with us, and if you're not, that's okay. You're still going to be able to follow along this morning. But I would encourage you to start watching. We still have uh, three more weeks. We're going to be watching this show with us and doing this on, on Sunday. So jump in. But for those of you who um, have been tracking along, you know that last week's episode was uh, this great story of Jesus turning uh, water into wine at the uh, wedding in Cana. And that's the passage that... Shelby just read from us. It's all based out of John chapter 2. And I'll tell you, I love this story. And it's not just because I like wine. though no, I do. It's, it's way more than that. I love this story because I think this story does a fantastic job of showing us what Jesus is like by showing us what he came to bring. This story shows us what Jesus is like by showing us what he came to bring. Now, I'm going to explain that statement in a minute, but first let me just kind of set up some context for us. Uh, again, we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your, past, uh, in your Bible or go there on your phone, or I'll have the words up here for you. But this passage, it, it begins um, with Jesus and his mother and his disciples having been invited to a wedding party in the town of Cana. And now wedding, uh, weddings in our day and age are a big deal, right? And that day and age, even bigger deal, right? Because uh, the, the whole town was basically uh, invited to a wedding. It was not just a celebration for a couple, but for the whole town. Weddings were good. Marriages were good for the town for lots of different economic and other reasons. So everyone gets into the celebration for a wedding back in that day and the day, and it would last not just for one afternoon or one into the evening, but for days and days and days. But this wedding was in danger of ending shamefully early. 
for the family who was throwing the wedding hadn't provided enough wine. And wine was an essential element to any giant wedding feast. If you ran out of wine, then basically the party was over, and that would have been a social disaster for this family. Incredibly embarrassing, shameful for them that their wedding party would have ended early. It should have been shame on the, uh, the couple getting married, shame on their extended family. I mean, it was a horrible thing for them and a horrible thing for everyone else because, hey, there was no more wine and the party was all over. Uh, and so at the end, in this passage, what you have is Jesus' mother come to, comes to him and says, hey, have you heard? <laughs> they have no more wine. Now, at the risk of getting uh, all deep and philosophical on you this morning, let me point out something that we all know is true, but we don't really like to admit, and that is that uh, the wine always runs out. And I'm not just talking about some at some of y'all's houses. No, the wine always runs out in the sense that, uh, uh, well, the joy, what I mean by that is that the joy always runs out. See, there's an old uh, rabbinical state, uh, saying that goes like this. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. Surprised I didn't get an amen from some of y'all on, on that. But where there is no wine, there is no joy. See, back then, and then still in a lot of ways today, wine and joy were associated together. They were kind of linked together in people's mind. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. And that's an important connection to make if we're going to understand the significance of this event that we're told about in John chapter 2. For as this passage unfolds, it becomes clear that through the eyes of Jesus, the wedding and the running out of wine carried much more weight and significance than just the crisis at hand. See, in the mind of Jesus, the disaster of this party running out of wine was actually to serve as a powerful metaphor for the very reason he had come. See, Jesus had come because the joy has run out. We live in a day and age uh, where finding joy and happiness is of paramount importance, right? Everyone's looking for joy. Everyone's looking for happiness. However, we can't seem to find any that lasts, can we? I mean, sure, we, we find some. We find it for a little bit. We first fall in love, or you first get that job that you are longing for, or you get that first taste of success, or something like that. You think, okay, maybe, maybe I've found joy that's going to last, but then... Huh, it never seems to last for very long, does it? See, poets, uh, prophets, uh, musicians uh, throughout the ages have all identified, identified that the reason for why we, uh, to quote Mick Jagger, uh, can't get no satisfaction is because uh, human desire is infinite. There's no end to it, which creates a problem because everything in this world is finite, right? And so no matter how good a thing is, it can never fully satisfy our infinite appetites. And so we live with this, like, this chronically unsatisfied desire, like an itch that no matter how many times you scratch it, it just won't seem to go away, that no matter how much we buy or do or see or experience, we always end up wanting more. No matter how good something is, 
how much joy it brings us for a little while. Eventually, the intensity of the joy fades. And as time wears on, you realize, to quote another musician, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So, what do you do when that is your experience? And uh, you just live long enough, you're going to find out that what I'm saying is true. That in the end, all the things that we're looking for to uh, provide us this lasting joy just can't do it. They're too finite to satisfy our infinite desire. So what, what do we do? That's the case. Well, you have four different ways that you can respond to this. And I uh, learned this, or I, I give credit to Tim Keller. He points this out in his awesome book, Encounters with Jesus. And in it, he, like what he points out here is so helpful. He says, okay, there's four ways to respond whenever you see that there, you can't find lasting joy. The first way you can respond is you can blame the things, right? You can say, I haven't found lasting joy because this thing that I thought would bring it for me, it was not good enough. That job wasn't good enough. That spouse wasn't good enough. This house wasn't good enough. It's the thing's problem. I just need to find the right thing. Or you can blame yourself. You can say, well, look, I haven't found lasting joy because I'm not good enough. Like if I was just better and I could get that job or I could make that much money or if I could get the attention of that guy or that girl, then I would be happy. But that's dangerous because if you start blaming yourself, then that's going to lead to low, low self-esteem and self-hatred, self-disgust. I mean, that's a dangerous way to go, but that is one way you can respond is blame lack of lasting joy on yourself. Or you can go a third way, which is you can blame the idea itself. You could say, okay, the reason why I can't find lasting joy is because there's no such thing as lasting joy. I, for some reason, I have it in my head that this should exist, but that is a lie. I'll never be satisfied. I'll never find lasting joy. It's a scam. Now, that's a very uh, convenient way to go. However, it's also very dangerous because you end up losing hope and muting your own heart. Now, there's a fourth way you can go to explain why you don't find lasting joy. This would be the biblical way to go. It's blaming not the thing or yourself or the idea, but it's actually blaming your separation from God. You blame your separation uh, from the one that is actually infinite enough to satisfy your infinite desires because he's the infinite, eternal God that you were created by and created for. Dallas Willard puts it this way, Dallas Willard being the theologian and author, he says, desire is infinite because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and, and able to supply all of our needs. See, could it be that the reason you can't find lasting joy and I can't find lasting joy is because there isn't anything infinite enough to satisfy your infinite desire other than the infinite God who created you and made you for himself? And so the only way you can truly have lasting joy is if you were united to him. See, friends, oh, that's why Jesus came. He came to bring you lasting joy by providing the way for you and I to be united to God, the source of lasting joy. And Jesus wanted us to know that that was the reason why he came, 
right from the very beginning of his ministry. And that's why he turned water into wine at this wedding in Cana. See, uh, the key to understanding the significance of this event is the last verse in this passage, verse 11. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Notice John doesn't use the the word miracle here. He uses the word sign. And a sign being a signifier or a symbol of something else. Signifier or a symbol of something else. And so John is saying that when Jesus turned water into wine, he did something that carried greater uh, greater meaning than just the act itself. He did something that revealed his glory and revealed who he is and what he had truly come to bring. And remember, just again, to, to, to kind of pile on the significance of this event, you got to remember the timing of it. See, this happened at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That Jesus is going public at this event with who he is and what he's all about. This is basically Jesus saying, okay, here's what I have come to do. And of all the things that he could do to signify what he had come to do, he chooses to keep a party going by providing a lot of great wine to a wedding feast. Now, why? Well, because right out of the gate, Jesus wanted us to know that he had come to bring lasting joy. He had come to bring the good stuff. That he had saved the best for last. That he was coming to bring what we had all been thirsting for but didn't even know truly did it really exist. That he had come to unite us to our infinite awesome God who is the source of true joy. See, the significance of this sign at this moment, at a wedding feast, is actually heightened when you know what the Bible says about how the biblical story ends. For at the end, we see that it story ends with a wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the people of God are forever united with God himself in a forever relationship. We read about this in Revelation chapter 19. And there it says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that would be God's people, has made herself ready. And then in verse 9 it says, Blessed, or that can be translated happy. Blessed, happy, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then in other words, we're told that one day, There's going to be a wedding feast, not a generic banquet, not just a generic party, but actually a wedding feast celebrating the forever union of God and his people. And friends, that's what Jesus came to make possible. He came to provide the way for us to enter into the one relationship that will bring us joy forever and ever. Pastor and author Tim Keller, reflecting on the joy of this union with God, says this. He says, the most rapturous love of a wedded couple on earth is just a dismal hint of the joy that we will find in him. Jesus has come so that it would be possible for us to experience the incredible joy that comes from being 
passionately loved by the one who understands you, who knows everything about you, and yet still fully accepts you. Now, isn't that the kind of love that we want? Isn't that kind of love that brings you joy? That someone who truly knows in everything about you and yet still is crazy about you, does that not bring you joy? That's what we have in God. He goes on, he says, He has come to bring you the incredible joy that comes from being loved by the one who you admire and respect more than anyone else ever, and you know is so much far greater than anyone you deserve. Is that not the kind of love that you want? Is that not bring incredible joy to your heart when you see someone that you think, okay, she is completely out of my league. He's completely out of my league. He never could ever get his attention, and yet you find out that he's absolutely crazy about you? Infinite joy being united with God, the source of all joy. That's what Jesus came to bring. But in order to bring us that joy, it would cost him dearly. See, what it would cost Jesus is hinted at in this passage. Remember that odd exchange that Jesus has with his mom? Mary tells Jesus that they're out of wine, and he says, "Uh, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. Now, that is, to put it, uh, I think, graciously, a weird exchange, right? If I was to be honest, I'd be like, Jesus, don't talk to your mom like that. What are you doing? Like, that's just me. Don't call your mom woman. And and Camp and Enoch, my son's over there, don't call your mom woman, okay? So (laughs) now it is helpful to know that in that uh, Back in that day, this was not a sign of disrespect. It was not a disrespectful way to address his mom. It was just, you know, a way to to do that. That's normal. However, even if you take that out of the picture, instead of saying woman, you just say, okay, mom, why do you involve me? My hour's not yet come. Even that start is still really weird, right? What is he talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the key to understanding what he's talking about is is, uh, found in the word hour. You see, in the, in the book of John, uh, Jesus refers to his hour uh, multiple times. In John chapter 8, 12, 13, and 17. And each time he does, he's always talking about the hour of his death. His hour on the cross. Now, with that understanding, it's even weirder. Because basically what you have in this exchange is Mary saying, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, why are you involving me? I'm not ready to die. Now, uh, Mary, which just kind of get a little insight into her here, that she is clearly used to her son's idiosyncrasies by this point. That he just, She just kind of completely brushes off his statement and just turns to the servants and says, hey, do whatever he tells you to do, right? Mom's. They're the best. They just, just roll with it, right? But for us, like, I think we need to stay here for a minute and just think about, like, why does Jesus uh, connect a simple request for wine with his death? Well, think about the symbolism. The miracle will be a sign about what he has come to bring. But Jesus knows that in order to bring the joy we are missing as a result of being separated from God, He's going to have to die. Now, why would that be necessary? Well, it's because we all 
carry with us guilt and shame as a result of our sin that separates us from God, the source of lasting joy. Remember, that's the reason from a biblical understanding of why we can't find lasting joy is because we are actually separated from the source of joy. It's our sin, it's our guilt, and it's our shame that separates us from God. And Jesus knows that he's the only one who can actually rescue us from our guilt and shame in order for us to be united and reconciled to God. See, this passage points to this truth as well. Verses uh, 6 and 7, you have Jesus actually using the, the uh, ceremonial purification jars to, in order uh, to create the water or the wine from, from the water in those jars. And that's significant because in the Old Testament Judaism, uh, it contained a great number of rules and regulations that required many various courses of physical cleansing and purification. And all of those Old Testament laws were there to point to the need that all people have for cleansing in order to connect with holy and perfect God. And the cleansing, the purification jars and cleansing yourself from the water there was the first step in preparing yourself to be able to connect to or be in the presence of God. And so when Jesus uses the ceremonial purification jars to create the wine or to bring the joy, he was foreshadowing something in the book that the book of Hebrews expounds on in great length. Namely, that Jesus fulfilled the entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system. From the first step of the ceremonial washing to the heart of the system, which was a blood sacrifice of a spotless animal. And so... Uh, through the use of the purification jars, he was signaling that the only way you'll ever have the great wine or the infinite joy at the great wedding feast is if I provide purification for your sins. Now, we live in a culture that hates the idea that we need saving. We live in a culture that thinks the only thing we really need saving from is the idea that we need saving. And we live in a culture that hates the idea that we're sinners and that we carry with us guilt and shame. And we think it's unhealthy to even think about ourselves in that way. But the truth is, we all carry with us a self-centeredness and an inward bent of our own heart that makes us more sinful than we can even fully see, than we can even fully comprehend. And God is clear in his word that sin must be paid for. Something must atone for my sin and your sin. Now, the word atone simply means to make right, to something must be set right, must set right what my sins have set wrong. But friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what you have is God coming to earth and dying in our place to set things right for us. He doesn't make us pay our debt. He pays the debt for us at great cost to himself. Now listen, I know that idea might be uncomfortable for some of y'all. It might just sit weird or like... Why would Jesus have to do that? If, the, if, if you're thinking that way, I, I, I get it. Let me try to help you 
like wrap your mind around this concept a little bit more by just uh, making fun of my boys. So, um, <laughs> Camp and Enoch are roughhousing in our house and wrestling as they are prone to do at times, and they accidentally, or on purpose, probably accidentally, uh, run into our TV and it falls over and breaks. I would have a couple options. My first option would be to actually make them pay for us getting a new TV. And they've been mowing yards, and so they've made a little bit of money, and birthday's coming up, so I just take all that money, and I just make them buy a new TV. Or I could be a really nice dad, and I could forgive them. But if I choose to forgive them, things are still not set right, are they? Either we're going to have to go without a TV, or I'm going to have to pay to get a new TV. That when something is broken, it always costs something to set it right. My friends, that's why a holy and just God won't just look down at us and say, hey, look at you hurting each other and hurting creation. I'll just ignore it and act like it's not happening. And the reason he won't do that it has nothing to do with him not loving us enough. It's quite the opposite. It's because there really is something wrong that has to be made right. But in Jesus, we see God is so loving that he was glad to pay for our sin himself. That he came and died in our place to make things right and to unite us to himself so that we can experience the lasting joy that is only found in being united with our infinite God. See, that's why Jesus was thinking about his hour when his mom asked him to provide a solution for the wine running out. He knew it would cost him the cross in order to bring us lasting joy, but he did it anyway. That's how committed Jesus is to bringing us joy. And that tells us something about who he is, doesn't it? He came to bring joy, friends, even at incredible cost to himself. Tim Keller, to quote him again in his book, Encountering Jesus, says, after turning the water into wine, Jesus sat in the midst of all of the joy of the wedding fe feast, sipping the coming sorrow of the cross, so that today you and I, who believe in him, can sit in the midst of all of this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy of being forever united with him. I love that. Friends, that's what Jesus is like. He came to bring us joy. He came to bring us the joy, the only joy that can truly satisfy our infinite longing, even though it would mean going to the cross. But listen, he was glad to do it. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all see what that verse is saying? It's saying that, bringing you the infinite joy of being united with God brought him joy. For the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's how committed he is to your joy. That's how much he enjoys bringing you joy, even at, at the great expense of his life.
And friends, because that's what he's like, it's just one more reason why he is clearly worth following. Now, to get maybe the stick in your mind a little bit more, I want us to watch this clip from The Chosen this past week. And just in light of all that I've said and the, and the, the, the significance of this sign and what was going on, just watch this and see what Jesus is like. Some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. Stop the music! Stop the music! Everyone, listen! I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> because by then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. Asher, son of Rafi and Dinah, to Sarah, daughter of Abner and Hila, be as pure and as fruitful as this wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. To Asher and Sarah. His first public sign. And go in public. This is what I've come to do. This is what I'm about. Turns water to wine at a wedding. Come to bring joy. Joy that comes through what I'm going to do at great cost to myself to unite you to the one, the only one, 
who can really satisfy your longing, your infinite longing for joy, God himself. Because this is what God is like. Now, as I've said at the very beginning of this message, the reason we're talking about what Jesus is like is because his invitation to all of us is to come and follow him. And so I don't want you just to hear this and be informed. I pray that you hear this and you're moved to actually spend time with Jesus so that he can make you like him and you can join him in what he's doing, that Austin will become more like heaven, that we would become more like Jesus. And so here's my challenge to you. My challenge is to listen to this and know that this is what he's like. He's the one who comes to bring joy. Who doesn't want to be with the one that's fully committed to your joy? Everyone likes hanging out with that guy. So here, hang out with him. Spend time with him tomorrow morning. Open up your Bible before your day begins. Pray and ask him to speak to you. Or just still yourself and just recognize that he's present. Meditate on who he is and what he's done. Connect with him. Spend time with him. The one who's come to bring joy. When I was in college, my junior year, my uh, roommates told me all about this girl named Krista. And they said, you need to meet her. I think that you would be crazy. I think, I think you would really like her. I think that she's like, they just went on and on and on about her. You know what I did? Nothing. You know why? Because I'm an idiot. And I missed out on at least a semester or longer of being able to be with the love of my life. Friends, don't just hear me tell you this. Don't let you see Jesus saying, this is what I'm like, and then it go over your head and nothing change. Let him move you to be with him. Don't miss out on the joy of your life. It's Jesus. We're going to end this time by taking communion together as we do every Sunday. Before we do that... I want to just invite you, if you have never believed this, if you never really got it, that, that this is who Jesus is, this is what he's like, this is what he came to bring at great expense to himself, that he would literally die in your place, pay for your sin and shame, guilt, so that you could be reconciled to God through his death. And that when he rose again, that he showed that he had defeated death. He fully paid for your sins so that you can be promised forever relationship with the one who truly satisfies. If you've never believed that, I would encourage you, instead of taking communion with us right now, because this is really reserved for those who believe that this is true, but for you, I would encourage you just to pray and ask God, God, is this true? Did you really do this for me? Is this really what you're like? Or perhaps if you're ready, you can tell God right now that you do believe that it's true, that you do believe that Jesus died in your place to unite you to God, the source of lasting joy. If you're ready to do that, you can just do it between you and God. Just tell him, God, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I want to be with you forever. For the rest of us,
Let's take communion now to remember what Jesus did to secure our joy. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.